in a series in the book of Acts, and we've uh, taught through the third chapter. We're in the fourth chapter. We're going to be closing out the fourth chapter this next weekend. Uh, But something very significant happened in the third chapter. A guy was miraculously healed after being lame all of his life, 40 years. And as a result of that miracle, that notable miracle, Peter preached and 5,000 men, not including women and children, were saved. So the church went from 120 to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to 5,000 to well over 10,000. The church is growing leaps and bounds. Uh, The religious order of that day were not altogether happy about this. They thought they had done away with this Jesus fanaticism when they nailed him to the cross weeks prior. But now, Jesus being raised from the dead, now living in the hearts and lives of his disciples, the ministry and the power of Jesus is still changing lives. And so they're uncomfortable with this. They arrest Peter and John. They have trial the next day, and they threaten and intimidate them to stop preaching in Jesus. They were afraid of what to do with them because a riot could break out, so they released them. And right after they were released, they did something very significant that we want to zero in on in our own lives this morning. So uh, I want to welcome those that are we're currently streaming live over the Internet. So for all that are watching, we welcome you. We had over 170 that were part of our live streaming last service. So can we welcome all those that uh, are watching right now via the Internet? So the title of the message, uh, WDYT, stands for Where Do You Turn? What do I mean by that? Well, where do you turn when your back's up against the wall? Where do you turn when life seems to be closing in on you? Where do you turn when you discover that your marriage is on life support? Where do you turn when your teenager is giving you fits? Where do you turn when unexpectedly you find out that you are now amongst the unemployed? Where do you turn uh, when you're dealing with sickness or disease? Where do you turn when you're dealing with pain or grief in your life? Well, where do we turn? We turn to friends. We turn to family. We turn to our church. And we sure turn to our church. A uh, woman came up to me this past Sunday, and uh, she is the aunt of Mark Isasaga, who was discovered. He was missing, young, beautiful, handsome, 15-year-old. And uh, a couple years later, they realized it's a murder case. It's now going to trial. She said, please express to the church, to Trinity, that as we've been going through this time of great sorrow and grief, that we were able to turn to our church and your prayers and your love and support has made all the difference for the Isasaga family. May we continue to keep them in our prayers. So where do you turn? You know, some people, unfortunately, they, they turn to drugs or they turn to alcohol or they turn to gangs or they turn to isolation and some even turn away from God. In our Bible text, Peter and John find themselves in jail And the very day that they're let out of jail, where do they turn? They went to church. So if you were in jail last night and you're in church this morning, I want you to know you're in good company and you made the right choice. So look at Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And I'd like for us to read this out loud together. The verse is going to come up on the screen, so here we go. After they were permitted to go, the apostles returned to their own company and told all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. I want you to notice it says when they were released, they turned to their own company. They returned to their own company. Say own company with me. See, every person belongs to some company. And I'm not talking about the company that you may have started. 
as a business person. I'm not talking about the company that you work for. We all belong to our own company. Matter of fact, in the world today, there are only two classes of people. I know there are different affinities and proclivities and proximities, but really there are only two categories, two groups of people, and they're not divided racially, and they're not divided economically. The two groups of people that are in our world are the saints and the sinners, the saved and the lost, children of the kingdom of light, children of the kingdom of darkness, those who are on their way to heaven, those who are on their way to hell. Only two groups, only two categories of people, sinner and saint, and I pray that you're a part of the latter and not the former, that you are among the company of the saved. Look to your neighbor and say, I know you're a saint. Come on, tell them, I know you're a saint. You might have to say that by faith, but they are a saint. Now, sometimes we feel like an ain't, right? I mean, just going through life and trying to honor God and please God. We all have our struggles. We all are at different levels of our spiritual development and our spiritual growth. Some are further along in some areas than others and vice versa. But at the end of the day, the way God sees you and the way God views you, if you've been born again, if you have been born again, is you're a saint in the eyes of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. You can read it for yourself, Ephesians chapter 1, and he says this, to the saints at Ephesus and the faithful. To the saints at Ephesus. Now, I know you're thinking, I have a Catholic background. Some of you may be Catholic or have a Catholic background. And you think, well, the Pope needs to make you a saint. No, no, no. When you get saved, you're made a saint. And in the eyes of God, you are a saint. You say, well, I feel more like the moon. Like the moon, yeah, I have a bright side and a dark side. Well, sometimes we're all like the moon then, right? We all have a struggle within us. Paul even identifies that struggle in Romans 7. He said the things, this is Paul talking. He was caught up to the third heaven. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And even Paul said the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do. Oh, wicked man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? So Paul understands that we have a struggle. Even though we're changed on the inside, we have a, a, a new spirit and a new heart. We've been born again. We still have to struggle with the outer man. We still have to struggle with the carnal nature of, or our Adamic nature. And so that, therein lies the struggle of sometimes we feel more sinner than saint, but really you're more saint than sinner. You are a forgiven sinner, and you've been accepted in the beloved. And so the disciples, they went to their own company. Uh, when you and I find ourselves in trouble or not, we should always return to our own company. I was talking to a, a family a couple of weeks ago, and I said, so how's your teenage daughter doing? They said, she's doing great. She's busy. She's going to school Monday through Friday, and she's working on the weekends. And a red flag went up, and I said, she's working on the weekends? They said, yes. I said, so she hasn't been in church? No. I said, that's not good. <laughs> they said, we know. I said, she needs to be amongst the fellowship of the saints. You see, you can get so busy in life and thinking that you're doing a good thing, but you're missing out on the best that God has for you when you and I do not return to our own company. Iron sharpens iron. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. How many know that we need to return to our own company and we need to fellowship with the saints? Now, why is that important? Because here's a biblical principle. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, and I want us to read this verse out loud together. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Say it again. Bad company corrupts good character. So the company you keep will determine the trouble you meet. 
I'll say that again. The company you keep will determine the trouble you meet. So you want to make sure that you are intentional about being in good company. Why? Because bad company corrupts what? Good character. There was a farmer that just became irritated and tired of crows coming into his, his field and messing with his harvest, right? So one day he had enough. He went out with a shotgun, and he fired off a few shots. And he knows he struck a few of those crows. All the crow lovers out there, sorry. So he went out there to see what kind of damage he had, had done, and he noticed Paulie the parrot was among the crows that he had shot. And he was heartbroken. But then Paulie began to move, so he realized, oh, good, I didn't kill Paulie, I just shot Paulie. So he carried Paulie back into the house, and when the children saw Dad carrying Paulie back in the house, they were mortified. They thought Dad had shot and killed Paulie the parrot. And they said, what happened, Dad? He said, I don't know. One of you must have left, you know, the, the cage open. And Paulie was out with the crows. And I hit her when I shot at the crows. I wasn't shooting at Polly. I was shooting at the crows. But Polly was with the crows, and I hit Polly. And at that moment, Polly spoke. Polly the parrot said, bad company, bad company. <laughs> so, the moral of the story, don't be hanging out with the crows, okay? So the company that we keep determines the trouble that we'll meet. I remember... Uh, my wife and I, we were over the young professionals ministry back at our former church early on in my ministerial years. So we worked with a lot of singles. And I, I remember that we had a lot of singles in our ministry and they were on fire for God, but I began to notice that there were some singles that were beginning to miss church. They were no longer coming to the Bible studies and they were, back, they were backsliding. They were going back into the, to the ways of the world. So I began to do a little investigation as to, okay, what's going on here? Is there a common denominator? And sure enough, there was a common denominator. I began to realize all the people that had begun to backslide and turn away from the Lord, they all worked for the same company. They happened to be working for Costco there in Albuquerque. Now, Costco's a good company. I shop at Costco. There are many wonderful people that work at Costco. It's a wonderful company. It could have been any company, but it happened to be Costco. And at this particular time, I mean decades ago, in Albuquerque, that Costco was a real party scene. So these young, these young professionals that were getting on fire for the Lord, they would go to their company, they'd go to, work, go to work, and they were working around a bunch of other people that weren't Christians yet, and they were being influenced by those non-believers, and they were being seduced and sucked back into the party scene. How many of you know that it's important that we need to be intentional that whether we go to a school or we go to work and there are a lot of unsaved people, how many of you know we need to make sure that we're pulling them up to our level and not letting them pull us down to their level, right? We don't want them to influence us. We want to influence them for Christ. So the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 13 says this, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. So if bad company corrupts good character, then the opposite is also true. Good company develops character, right? Good company develops character. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're in good company today. Come on down. You're in good company today. Yeah, yes. Now, when, the, when Peter and John left jail and they went back to their own company, okay, you're amongst your own company this morning, Right for like a total of 65 minutes or 70 minutes. Thank God for what you get. So we're amongst our own company. They did three things. They went to church, their own company. They opened the scriptures and they prayed. They went to church, opened the scriptures and prayed. Wow, that sounds like a recipe for success to me. You see, that's, what, that's the pattern that they followed 2,000 years ago. That's the pattern 2,000 years later. Fast forward, that's what we're following today. 
Uh, literally millions of Christians all throughout our city, state, and nation around the world are gathering together in their own company, and they're opening the scriptures, and they're praying. Now, we're going to look at their prayer, and there were three components to their prayer, the transcendence of their prayer, the truth of their prayer, and the TNT, or the power of their prayer. So let's look at the first. Let's look at the transcendence of their prayer because prayer transcends time, places, people, and events. Prayer is powerful. Prayer reaches the throne room of God itself. And here's their prayer. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together with one united mind to God and said, here's what they said. Read this out loud with me. O sovereign Lord, you are he who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. So they prayed a transcendent prayer because they address God as being sovereign. Now be honest with me, how many of you have ever used this phrase, God is sovereign? Have you ever used that phrase? Raise your hand. God, okay, about 10 of you. All right, how many have ever heard that phrase, God is sovereign? Raise your hand. Okay, about 20 of you. All right, so say this with me, God is sovereign. Let's say, God is sovereign. All right, how many of you have ever said God is sovereign? Okay, I'm looking for 100% participation. That's what I'm talking about, okay. Well, sometimes we use phrases and we don't even know what those phrases mean, right? People say, well, God is sovereign. Well, what does it mean? He is. What does it mean? It means that God possesses all and God rules over all that God is sovereign. Now, this is such an important biblical topic. I wanted to make sure that you had the notes that I have access to. So what I did is I simply copied and pasted out of Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary an important lesson on the sovereignty of God. You can download that through our app or the, the Bible UVerse uh, uh, app or go online or old school, go to the, <laughs> the guest connections and we have a hard copy. I want you to, I want you to get this teaching. So the, the details are, are given to you uh, by way of me sharing the notes. So when we say God is sovereign, that means he's the ruler over all things because he has power over all things and the Bible is very clear that he is sovereign. He is sovereign over at least three things, right? He's sovereign over all creation. All creation, because God is the creator, he is sovereign over all creation. Jesus demonstrated the sovereignty of God when he was on the earth because Jesus was God in human form. Jesus demonstrated the sovereignty of God when he walked on water. The very water he created, he was able to alter the molecules of that water, which allowed him to walk on water, demonstrating that he is sovereign over creation. He was sovereign over fallen evil spirits, demons, who were former angels in heaven, and one-third of the angels rebelled with Lucifer and were cast to the earth, and they are the evil spirits that live among us. He, was, he showed his sovereignty over evil spirits by commanding them to come out of those that they had possessed. He was sovereign over life and death because he would raise dead people uh, to life. He was sovereign over creation because he took fish and loaves and he multiplied them and he fed thousands with that. So God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over human history. There are no events that have ever happened or, ever, or will ever happen in human history that God ultimately is not sovereignly over the events of human history. Now, that does not violate human will, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Man is still has free will and can, and can still make decisions contrary to God's will and will be held accountable for that. There are consequences to our choices and our decisions because even though God is omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful, and even though God has foreknowledge, he never superimposes his foreknowledge upon human will, which means he never violates your, your choice 
You can choose good, you can choose evil. You can choose to love him, you can choose not to love him. God will not make you do anything. He will not violate your will unless your will is about to impose itself on the sovereign predestined purposes of God for his creation. Then God will intervene. He did that in the story of Babel in Genesis 11. God realized that because they spoke one language and they were all united for an evil cause, now he said anything they imagine they'll be able to do. So God had to supernaturally intervene and put a stop to it. So in history, God has supernaturally intervened at times. Nations rise, nations fall uh, at the command of our God. Number three, he is sovereign over redemption. Scripture depicts redemption as the work of God alone. It's not God and man, God and you, God and this, God. It's all God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But even the faith that you receive to hear and receive the word of God is a gift from God. And then he provides you the grace behind the faith so that you can be saved. And then at the end of the day, nobody comes to the Father except the Holy Spirit draw them. So there's not one person here that's saved or that's going to be saved by the end of this service that can say, I did it on my own. It was by God's grace and the wooing of the Holy Spirit that brought all of us to a place of repentance. How many know none of us can pat ourselves on the back and take credit for the salvation? It's all him and it's all because of his love and because of his grace. But you had free will. You didn't he wants everyone to be saved, but not everyone will be saved. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's what Scripture says. So God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? So we still have free will. Even though God wants everyone to be saved, not everyone will be saved. Now, in the fact that God is sovereign, it actually uh, poses some challenges to that thought because there seems to be some contradictory events that happen in life that may say otherwise, that maybe God isn't sovereign. For example, sovereignty and evil. Even though God is sovereign, there's still evil in the world. Is God evil? No. Does God create evil? No. Man created evil because man disobeyed God. So why is there evil? Because there are evil people and people have free will and people can choose to do good or people can choose to do evil. Now, God will hold those that do evil accountable, but they can still do evil uh, and, and be judged for that evil. So even though God is sovereign, because he made us free moral agents, we can choose to do good or to do evil, and, and the world is a better place when we choose to do good and not to do evil. Now, ultimately, God can restrain evil. Ultimately, God will take evil and use it for his glory and your good. In the story of Joseph, he told his brothers towards the end of uh, uh, his life, his brothers came to him af afraid that he was going to now take revenge on them because their father had died, and he said this. He said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good, which means even the evil that people that is perpetrated against your life or my life by evil people, God doesn't cause that. God can still use that for his glory and your good. And here's the other thing about evil you need to know. God can just end all evil, and he will. That's, that's uh, the teaching of eschatology uh, when all things will be reconciled to God, when Jesus will establish his kingdom on the earth. Um, that will happen. Uh, but it, God would have to violate human will in order to do that. And so the way he created us, he created us as free moral agents, not as robots that he programmed to love and serve him. Hence, that's why there's evil in our world. Sometimes we question sovereign, the sovereignty of God and free will. 
Uh, sometimes it seems contradictory. Well, if God is sovereign, he knows everything, and he's predestined and preplanned those who will serve him, and, and he knows those who won't serve him, do I even have a, 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 a choice in the matter? Yes. Because once again, you have free will, and even though God wants you to be saved, if you don't want to be saved and he offers you to be saved, you can reject that salvation. Now, who in their right mind would reject such a wonderful Savior? Who in their right mind would reject such a wonderful invitation to come follow Christ? And yet, people do it all the time. So we still have free will. You see, the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. It's the substance that, that, that is being, that is being uh, uh, receiving the life from the sun that determines whether it is hardened or whether it's softened. So the story of Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God, and God even hardened his heart further to further demonstrate his power and his sovereignty. So God is sovereign, but yet we have free will. And then there's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. Even though God is sovereign, you still have a responsibility to respond to the, to the sovereign will of God for your life. It's like two pedals on a bike. God is sovereign, but yet we're responsible. God is sovereign, but yet we're responsible. God is sovereign, but we should still pray. God is sovereign, but we should still preach and share the gospel with others. God is sovereign, but faith without works is dead. And so it's like two pedals on a bike, God's part, your part. That's why as Christians, we can't just pray for good people and godly people to be elected to office. We have to vote. Hello, there's the sovereignty of God, and then there's the human responsibility of man. God will do his part if you and I do our part, but we've got to do our part so God will do his part, and it's a beautiful dance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, and we need to make sure that we're not being derelict of our duties, and we are praying, and we are voting, and we are getting involved, and we're letting our light shine, because it's not all up to God, it's also up to us. So the transcendence of their prayer, now look at the truth of their praying. In verse 25, who by the mouth of our forefather David, your servant and child, said through the Holy Spirit. Now, they're quoting David. David was not only a warrior, he was not only a worshiper, he was not only a king, he was a prophet. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write portions of the Bible, the Old Testament. He wrote many psalms. They're about to quote Psalm 2, Psalm chapter 2. David, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote this psalm, and it had a prophetic reference of the future, a psalm that's yet to really be fulfilled in its entirety. But here's the beautiful thing they did. They took a future uh, prophetic promise, and they applied it to a present circumstance and situation. That's the beauty of God's Word. You can read something that might have uh, prophetic implications for generations down the road or years to come, but the principle and the truth of that promise can be applied to your current present situation in your life. Now keep that in mind because now they're going to quote Psalm 2. Why did the heathen Gentiles become wanton and insolent and rage? And the people imagine and study and plan vain, fruitless things that will not succeed. In the end, the evil plots and plans of an evil world will not succeed in the end, will not succeed. The kings of the earth took their stand in array for attack, and the rulers were assembled and combined together against the Lord and against his anointed Christ, the Messiah. Verse 27, for in this city they're actually met and plotted together against your holy child and servant, 
Jesus. There are many titles and names for Jesus in the Bible. Uh, over, well over 200 names and titles for Jesus. He's called the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's called the door, the light of the world. So many wonderful descriptions of our Savior. This is one of the most beautiful. He's referred to as your holy child and servant Jesus. Can we say that together? Your holy child and servant Jesus. How precious. Whom you consecrated by anointing both, now they're naming names, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to carry out all that your hand and your will and purpose had predestined, predetermined should occur. Now they're saying, yes, God, you're sovereign. It was the will of the Father that Jesus would go and die on the cross. Nothing could have altered that. Nothing could have changed that. However, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews are all held responsible because our choices are real choices that have consequences. And even though it was predetermined, predestined that Christ had to go to the cross, they did not necessarily have to be the ones that nailed him to the cross, but because they did, it was an act of their own free will in accordance with the ultimate plan and purposes of God, but they will be held accountable and they will be judged for that. Now, one responsibility that pastors, ministers, priests have in their congregations, one of the responsibilities they have biblically mandated in Scripture is there to help put the world in focus. You see, our world is out of focus. Our world is chaotic. And when you and I assemble to hear the Word of God, that messenger must be obedient to the teaching of Scripture and to the leading of the Holy Spirit and needs to help put the world that's out of focus back into focus. So I have a responsibility to do that. And in so doing, this morning or this afternoon, I, I may offend some of you. That's not my intention. You have the right to totally disagree with me, but I, I ask that you would disagree with me on an intellectual, theological level and not on an emotional level. I would ask that you would care enough about the truth that you would search out the facts and the truth for yourself and allow the Spirit of God through the Holy Scriptures to shape your worldview on how you see the world, that you would see the world not as the world sees it, because the Bible is very clear. Satan is the God of this world. You wonder why the world's in such a mess? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, write it down, look at it later. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the small case G God over this world system. He is ruling this world system right now. He's on a chain. God has him on a chain. He can only go so far. But he's in charge temporarily. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, the entire world lies under the sway, under the spell, under the deception of the evil one. It's my hope and prayer that through the preaching of the Word of God, the entrance of God's Word brings light, it brings understanding to the simple, that any satanic deception or spell that you may be living under, that the light of the gospel would penetrate and that your eyes would be open and that you would see the light and that you would see the truth in Jesus' name. So the disciples name names, I'm going to name at least one name. Our president seems to be confused about his own faith, which he professes to be a Christian. On multiple occasions, both he and his administration have attacked the tenets of the Christian faith through their policies and their pronouncements. On multiple occasions, Christianity has been slighted and Islam has been defended. This is a fact. 
Most recent occurrence was at the National Prayer Breakfast, February of this year, and there was a wonderful speech the president gave, but there were parts very disconcerting. Here is one quote from that speech. Unless we get on our high horse and think that this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. Both Catholic and Protestant religious leaders have interpreted those remarks as a direct attack on Christianity and a defense of Muslim atrocities. The president's remarks came just two days after the release of a video of the burning death of a captured Jordanian pilot who was burned alive by ISIS. It came one day after radical Islamic army was selling children and crucifying children. Those remarks came in the context of the worst atrocities being committed against Christians of really the, the past two centuries. There are many other startling examples of our president, whom we need to pray for, taking a direct stand against biblical teaching. His support of abortion on demand is murder, according to Scripture. His support of same-sex marriages, which, by the way, three years ago, three years ago, he defended the traditional definition of marriage. His administration presently is allowing literally tens of thousands of Muslim immigrants to come to America. Taxpayer dollars are helping to bring these Muslim immigrants. It's called the Muslim Refugee Resettlement. It is called uh, Hira, which is Muslim Immigration Jihad. The Muslims have a strategy to overtake all Christian nations. One way that they anticipate accomplishing that, this might make you feel uncomfortable, this is the fact, this is what's happening right under our very nose, is to have mass immigration into these Christian nations to bring Islam and to bring Sharia law and to bring their way of living. Now, there's the religion of freedom here in the United States of America, but every immigrant understands that America was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic, on the Bible, we're one nation under God, not one nation under Allah, not one nation under Muhammad, not one nation under Buddha. We were built, all the men that signed the Declaration of Independence, but a handful, two or three, were uh, professing Christians, that they were part of Christian denominations. It, the Bible was the guiding uh, influence in our founding documents. You, you, you can change history if you want, but you can't change reality. You can't change the facts. So why all this Muslim immigration? To displace the Christian population, to tip the scales of balance. That's just in the political world. How about in the religious world? Whole denominations are denying the moral teachings of Scripture and are voting for a more tolerant view and interpretation of sexual sins, such as homosexuality. Not the only sexual sin. There are heterosexual immoral sins as there are homosexual immoral sins. But the Presbyterian Church USA, United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and the Episcopal Church all affirm same-sex unions. The United Methodist Church just the other day voted to change the church's position on homosexuality by allowing clergy to be practicing homosexuals perform gay weddings. This measure passed in the connections table by a vote of 26 to 10. It will go to the General Assembly next year in Portland. And if the General Assembly votes it, it will become the new doctrine of the United Methodist Church. The Pew Research 
recently did a survey. A solid majority of people who identify themselves as mainliners now favor allowing gays and lesbians to wed. In the survey that they conducted September 2014, 60% of mainline Protestants now say they favor same-sex marriage, up from 34% just a decade ago. If you saw in the news over the weekend, Dublin, Ireland became the first country in the world to adopt same-sex marriage by a massive popular vote of 62%. There is a tsunami of support for gay marriage sweeping across this globe of ours, and you need to know what in the world is going on. There are only 3% of citizens in the world and in America who are actually homosexual or lesbian. You would think every other person is involved in that lifestyle. My friend, that is not the case. But here's what you need to understand. There is one company of people, there's one group of people that stands in the way of the eventual appearance of a man that's been named in the Bible called the Antichrist, who will come to the forefront in the last days will have global influence and global power. The agenda of Satan and the agenda of the coming Antichrist is to have full reign and influence in our world and to deceive masses of people into the big lie, the lie of the enemy. There is one group of people that will stand in the way of the Antichrist and world domination. That one group of people are the blood-washed, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, called-out church of the living God that believe in the teachings of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And everything that you hold to be true, near, and dear, the enemy comes to distort and to pervert. And so this is a satanic strategy. He has willing vessels who are willing to perpetrate the lie and the evil, and the church of Jesus Christ needs to wake up. We need to wipe the sleep from our eyes and realize what is happening in our world, and it, my friend, is a sign of the times in which we live. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Sodom, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And we see the stage being set for the eventual appearance of the Antichrist. And you need to know, everything that God does, Satan perverts. So if God wasn't for marriage, then the world wouldn't attack marriage. But because God created marriage, and God is for marriage, and God's defined marriage, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, the enemy will attack that. Because God's the creator of life and the defender of life, Satan hates life and attacks it. And so he's a murderer. The Bible, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. Because God loves order and he loves everything to be done decently and in order, Satan is the author of confusion. Everything God does, Satan perverts and Satan distorts or he imitates. God is a holy trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the last days, the enemy will mock and imitate God. There will be an unholy trinity the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the beast, which will be the political system, the machine, uh, automated political power machine that the Antichrist and the false prophet will use to uh, promote their propaganda and the big lie. 
But the Antichrist and the false prophet will represent politics and religion and how both politics and religion will merge into one to have the greatest influence and sway and deception over the masses. You need to make sure in the days and weeks and months to come that you join with your own company and that you are part of a church and you are a part of a gathering of people who will not shy away from the controversial issues of our day. We'll call it like it is. We'll speak the truth in love. And if you don't have a home church like that, you need to find one as quickly as possible because there's a line being drawn in the sand and we're going to have to choose sides. We're either going to be for Christ or we're going to be against Christ. We're either in the company of the sinners or in the company of the saints. And God wants us to be a part of the saved and not the lost so that we can point the lost to Jesus so they can come to the saving knowledge of who Christ is. There is hope. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. And the Bible says in the last days, God will pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will dream dreams. Old men, young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams I want you to know we are not running to the mountains to hide we are not looking for a hole in the ground we're looking for a hole in the air we're not looking for the Antichrist but we're looking for the Christ and Jesus said when you see all these things happening look up for your redemption draws nigh let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions and if it were not so I would not have told you and I go to prepare a place for you and if I've gone to prepare a place for you I I will come back again so that I can receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be the greatest plan of God is about to be unveiled and because he is sovereign no one can interfere with that plan Hollywood and the entertainment industry cannot false religions cannot political powerhouses cannot God will have his way his kingdom will come and his will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven and you are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken hallelujah and so what was the TNT of their prayer the transcendence of the prayer the truth of the prayer the power of their prayer look at verse 29 and now, Lord, observe their threats and grant to your bondservants full freedom to declare your message fearlessly while you stretch out your hand to cure and to perform signs and wonders through the authority and by the power of the name of your holy child and servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with freedom and boldness and courage. I want you to know last night, I was preaching this, God's my witness, those of you that were with us last night, as I was saying these very words and reading this very scripture, it began to thunder outside, and it is as though this auditorium began to shake under the power of God. It was one of the most spooky experiences I've ever had. God is real. His power is real. What the Bible says is going to happen is going to happen, and you can't make it not happen. You can just be a part of the great revival or the great apostasy. You have the freedom to choose. I pray that you choose to be a part of the great outpouring of God's grace in these last days. You see, God loves everybody, and we love everybody, and we'll prove it. 
Many of you have come out of the homosexual lifestyle. Many of you may be struggling with that. That doesn't scare me. I've had people that came out of the homosexual lifestyle that were part of my singles ministry in our former church. And I love these, these guys like my own brother. I, just, I was down there in the trenches with them. When they stumbled and fell, I was there to help pick them back up and say, hey, don't give up. God's not giving up on you. You can make it. You can do it. We provided ministry. We provided love. We provided prayer. We provided support. And many of them are walking in freedom to this day. I want you to know that as a church, we will back up our words. We will back you up. I don't care what you may be struggling with. We have life groups. We have Bible studies. We have freedom ministry. We have pastoral team that knows how to do spiritual life coaching, Christian life coaching. We have a, a counselor uh, that we're going to be bringing on staff in the next com coming weeks. As a church, we will do everything in God's power and our power to come alongside of you and help you find your freedom in Christ. And I know whom the sun sets free is free indeed. But when we come to God, when we come to God, we can't come with excuses. We can't rationalize our sin. We have to call it for what it is. It's sin. But the beauty of that is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the beauty is, my friend, there is still power at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's power in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's power in the Holy Spirit coming into a man or woman's life. And the long arm of God's salvation is reaching down to you right now. And if you will not slap that hand away, but you will grab hold of the arm of the Lord, the strong arm of the Lord, he can pull you up out of the mire and clay and set your feet upon a rock to stay. And he can do what only he can do. He can change you from the inside out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Every head bowed, please, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today and we say, Lord, hear their threats and intimidations. And God, give us courage and boldness to speak your word truthfully. In the name of your holy child, the servant Jesus, grant us miracles that we might see the power of God bring life transformation and restoration in the lives of people that are in need of Jesus. Help us to be a part of the answer, not a part of the problem, part of the solution. Help us to be the light and the salt, God, in these last days. Help us to love you like we've never loved you before. Help us to come to our own company. Help us to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Lord, I pray now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can know his love, grace, and forgiveness. Right here, right now, right where you're seated. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God, raise him from the dead, you will be saved. So pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?